This conversation on critique features Andrew Atwood, Laurel Broughton, Andrew Kovacs, Jimenez Lai, Anna Niemark, and James Tate. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. I think there's two, I mean, it's, it's basically, there's sort of two different ways you, we could understand that term. One is that it's a kind of judgment against something, that you're standing in judgment, that you're evaluating it, right? And it has negative connotations. The other is, is like the sort of purpose of a critique, which is to examine the kind of boundaries of knowledge inside the thing you're looking at. That to be critical or to, or to, to work critically is to have distance for, from something so that you can understand, let's say, its limits to produce new knowledge. That was Andrew Atwood. Now here's Andrew Kovacs. Yeah, of course the world we have is not the best possible world. Maybe, you know, maybe this is the utopian side, but I think that architecture really can kind of change the world as naive as other people might think that is. And I think, you know, architecture can be fun. It doesn't have to be these bland, boring boxes that have no joy in them. I mean, and maybe that's naive of me, but I really think that like architecture can sort of make life a little bit more enjoyable. But I think architecture really is a luxury that we don't need architecture to survive. Now, I know a lot of people will disagree with this. They'll they'll say no, you. But I would say we need maybe building or shelter that like we just need you know water and kind of basic food. But we don't we don't need like it's all of the stuff that we sort of rely on is really excessive and i and i think that like you know actually like music and film like we we could live our lives without them but our lives are a little bit more enjoyable and pleasurable with those things and i think architecture should be like those things as well and that architecture can sort of you know make things a little bit more enjoyable and pleasurable that that uh, that it could sort of bring joy to the world but i also no but no but, but i also can find pleasure in dullness so, um, so you know, like I, I, I can find pleasure in a shitty strip mall, but I don't know if everyone can. Anna now brings our conversation toward the recent history of critique. In response to a comment that pitted the so-called practice generation or post-critical generation in opposition to the critical project of Eisenman, Anna points out that it was more of a continuation of the critical project. Maybe I don't see it as such a huge break as what you presented. It seems to me like much of digital production, which was maybe also understood as a kind of post-critical generation, was literally the new avant-garde, which came out of Peter Eisenman. You know, like Greg Lynn and Sarah Whiting, that, that would probably be a lineage rather than a breaking point, right, between the two generations. And it seems that the, the digital tools offered a new avant-garde to occur, which quite often was not about practice. Maybe at some point it became something that had to be fabricated as well and kind of tested against reality, but at least in its theorizing, it was, it was meant to continue some of the traditional kind of tropes of art making, meaning it had to kind of exceed um, capitalist culture, it had to kind of exceed regular production techniques and, and offer kind of new visions uh, new forms for architecture. So I would I would think of it in a very positive sense. It was an extremely important moment, and I think we we come directly out of that. James adds to Anna's remarks on Peter Eisenman and the Critical Project, and then begins to talk about how architecture is transformed by other fields of knowledge. 
Then Laurel follows by bringing in the topic of the market. I, I have a certain relationship to it because of having studied with with Peter. <laughs> it's probably something that I that I can't avoid because it in in some way I I went through that. I think there is a place for for the critical project. Having also spent a little bit of time around Sarah Whiting and, and Bob Somal, I understand their position in terms of the kind of negative project that it became with Peter. I spend probably a lot of time, just given the courses that I teach, I end up looking a lot at John Hayduck's Diamond House, for example, or the nine square problem that he set up. And when I look at it, I say, okay, that was a really interesting kind of approach to architecture at that time. How would I do that today? There's a, there is a kind of embedded both critique, but also I think uh, seeing real merit in those things simultaneously. And maybe when I was first exposed to the critical project in grad school, I, I saw it as as being a kind of purely negative, and I probably, I, I in some ways look at, I think when I'm judging something today, I'm both looking for kind of latent potentials in, in them, but also I am judging like where they might have gone down a direction that I w would not have gone down. When we think about something like the critical project, that existed before, I think it's turned toward philosophy. <laughs> that That's probably something where I, I look at today and I'm like, in some ways that was the first kind of turn towards bringing things from outside of architecture, how those things interacted with the architecture's body of knowledge. Was that productive or was that actually a problem? What does one allow to bring in to the discipline or into things that are more persistent in architecture? How, do, how does one bring things outside of things that are traditionally not those tendencies or persistencies to get them to kind of interact with one another? That was something that was put on the table in the second half of the 20th century. I don't think it's going to go away. <laughs> There's so many practices right now that bring things from outside of the discipline into it that those are going to constantly be on the table. I think we do need to be more discriminative about how we go about disciplining those things and, and what are they contributing. How, how are they helping to kind of move architecture? How are they helping us to challenge what our perceptions are of what architecture could be, might be, should be. I am very interested in the way that the things go out into the world and how in that process, a lot of the disciplinary or critical things that I'm interested in, in the production of those things, how that actually gets washed away and therefore makes me wonder whether or not the emphasis on those on that kind of criticality has any 
has any real meaning or place if that isn't because I don't think that's how the the engagement with objects with things in the world is not necessarily is not one that's critical per se I value criticality in almost everything and I would say that in my engagement with things in the world there's always a kind of criticality involved and the reason why I am interested in something as dumb as a you know a plastic representation of a pill is because I there's a inherent criticality about why it is that thing and that definitely gets put into how I produce the work and why I produce the work but then particularly in the things that engage the market that's not the way the things operate the more overt a, the criticality is within a product the less likely the market is to want to engage it here andrew kovacs responds to the question of whether architecture should have a political stake in the world and its relationship to the market yeah i think it i think it should I absolutely think it should. I'm always skeptical of how it does though. And I'm always kind of weary about how it does. And I think in our world today where everything is really driven by the market, it's much more difficult for architecture to kind of stake those kinds of claims so openly and blatantly. But I think that it should, but I, I think it's much, I mean, and maybe that's where like housing becomes interesting, but then, you know, that housing is, is built by generally by private developers. I'm always skeptical of it because I think that uh, it oversteps what our real power might actually be. That I don't, I don't think we actually have that kind of power and I would I, I, to do those things. And I wonder how we can actually get that power back if we ever had that power. But then at the same time, I'm also skeptical of it that, like, that power won't sort of be corrupted. One of the problems with the, the, the critical project, as I understood it, is that it, it, it ended up being a kind of, it had a sort of circular logic, which is that it, it, it simply, and it kind of eventually just collapsed in on itself, meaning we were looking at architecture view a kind, through a kind of architectural lens, Solely, and it just it just was this sort of like banging on the center of the discipline with the tools that were had already been established in hopes that something new would happen. I think that you know I think at a, at a, there are times when those things are productive when the sort of tools have changed, let's say, and probably that is a little bit of what the post digital project could have offered, which was kind of introduction of new tools, and then at a certain point you kind of reexamine in a critical way the status of those tools against, let's say, um, the center or the core of a field or a discipline. But I think, I think things move faster. And again, as we sort of continue to return to a critical project, we're constantly reaching the sort of limits of whatever those new, new tools might be or new frameworks or new ways of thinking about architecture. And so it isn't like the, the post-critical project was just one way to sort of, let's say, acknowledge the limits of those things. And I would say, Maybe now we need another way to do that. But then I think Anna and I have, I think that, for instance, I think that's why Anna and I introduced things like, let's say, uh, certain art, certain types of art and also things like mountains 
simply just a kind of leveraging device from outside of architecture, right? To kind of bang on the inside of it. Because if we're simply just like sort of, if, if, we're, if we're sort of examining plans using plans, I don't know what we, at a certain, we exhaust that quite quickly. So it's like, how do we test something like a plan against something like a mountain or by comparing it to a thing like a painting? It's a way to be critical, which is just to say it's the way to kind of examine the extensive knowledge that might be produced in something without falling into the kind of circular logic that I think a lot of the, the, the sort of first critical project fell into, which was just this sort of like, you know, these sort of like the sort of mathematory logic, like the sort of processes of just circling around ourselves constantly. And so I think post-critical project was one way to do that. And I think there's other ways to do it. This is why other disciplines, I think, are important and thinking about different ways in which we might intersect them is just to kind of get out of that trap, right? So art is one way to do it. Let's say geography or geology might be another way to do it. Not that that's what that, some of the mountain stuff that we've done is about. But. The plan was to look at Ram Kolhas and to try to understand how the avant-garde could actually begin to operate in the world, in a kind of globalizing world, um, God forbid, make money and have clients and actually build a couple of things. And there was an idea about looking at, let's say, for Rem, probably looking at the Russian constructivists and the kind of the movement of actually building housing for the masses. Like Narkomfin was engaged avant-garde. And how to bring that into the contemporary kind of, let's say, economic systems so that the autonomy project wouldn't be a limited inward-looking, disciplinary-only project, but would actually begin to expand into, into the world at large. We would all probably agree that even though some of the questions we're asking are disciplinary, that we would love for our practices to flourish and to build rather than to, uh, to, to only dwell on things like representation for the sake of representation. I mean, it's, it's a strange thing because, like, if a record sucks, people will not buy it. If a movie sucks, people will not see it. If a building sucks, people will still have to use it. Maybe, maybe there's a way that, like, people would stop using shitty buildings, but I don't, I don't really see that happening. I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I would love it if the world saw how great I see architecture to be. So maybe that's also part of, like, sharing all that stuff online. Andrew then responds to the question of whether architecture's patronage isn't the way to understand where its political involvements lay. Who's your daddy? Well, I think everyone's daddy's money, in a way, <laughs> today. So, and I think that ar architecture can, can, can try to function and do things, but it will always, even at a kind of low-tech, everyday, guerrilla level, it still needs some kind of money or some kind of so it needs something like something like you can't do things for free. I I mean yeah who's your yeah who's your daddy? I think architects want to just let architecture be their daddy. In a way that like we just want to it's it's much easier and much more comfortable to kind of sit in like a position where we just talk about things that matter to us. But at the same time, I think it also becomes dangerous when we have to start talking about things that matter to everyone, because I don't know if we're the right people to, to do that all the time.
right? I don't know if that's our skill set. I, I wonder about that. I mean, I, I don't have an answer, really. Andrew is most known for his archive of affinities. It could be argued that the horizontal structure and the way his online archive accumulates implies a politics in itself, specifically an egalitarian one. But in what follows, Andrew responds to the opposite implication of his taste for accumulation, to the provocation that the way things accumulate in his own sculptures shows that there's something that is, in his own words, monstrous about horizontality and equality when it comes to this kind of accumulation. But see, I think that that would all, I think that you wouldn't have to buy the monster. I think that the monster is a, uh, a proposal for a different kind of world where you don't buy a building, where it's not, you're not buying a monster because uh, everyone is, if everyone really were to build something collectively together, it would be a monster. That would, uh, that's my suspicion, I think. I, you know, I'm working on a project now where there's actually a, a client. Uh, it's a renovation of an Airstream trailer to be a retail space. And there are some aspects of it that are a little bit kind of strange, but they're all, they've sort of, they're okay with it thus far. I mean, we'll see how, how much they really are as it keeps going. But I think some of those quote unquote grotesque monsters is part of also if the world saw how wonderful architecture could be and really wanted to make everything that they really desired, and so you sort of all had to make it next to each other, it would be horrendous. It would be awful, but there would be a beauty in that. And I think there would be a kind of joy to that, actually. I mean, I mean maybe it's a kind of perverse broadacre city in a way where everyone gets their own plot and can do whatever they want. I think that would be more exciting. And maybe that's also like where I do what, what I sort of appreciate about people that make architecture that are not trained as architects. So kind of outsider architects like Watts Tower or quote unquote outsider architects, like things like Watts Towers. I think those are incredibly beautiful and magnificent and they just come from some other world that is not the discipline of architecture. I mean, there might be a kind of discipline of building with them, but, but how can you include those things? How, what can we sort of appreciate from them or value from them and fold into our own way of working? Or, you know, is, is there, is, I think, is, is, you know, architecture's real, maybe like social political role is like, is, is there a way that like, you know, people can kind of understand architecture or appreciate architecture or see its value or worth? that it doesn't have to be like a shitty brown box. Even though there are some funny things about shitty brown boxes. Go to any architecture school, I don't think they're reimagining the world <laughs> too much. I mean, they, they are, people certainly are to a degree, but I think still it's all kind of conventional. It's not like really challenging how we should live, how we should change things what really that change might be. You know, how, ext how, how, how extreme can we really get if we really want to change, like, change things? So I don't know if like, fundamentals are really important to changing things. Fundamentals are important to keeping things the way they are. The more Andrew and I are kind of going out to other schools to participate on reviews, I think the more we become aware of the fact that even within a kind of uh, North American, let's say, context, we don't actually have unity of one 
pedagogy or one school of thought. Let's say the less technology drives uh, design, the more diversity and the more difference each of the schools takes on. And I hope that all of the schools can kind of infiltrate one another further so that we can establish common languages. So the question of looking at terms is really important because we can begin to define them more clearly for ourselves and we can actually have these conversations across different kind of boundaries, whether they're just geographic or political. I agree with that. I mean, I think like establishing the terms is is interesting and good. I also think that at a certain point, um, like like postmodern, it has a history and a baggage, but it also can, I also think there are just like sort of basic things that everybody, at least that we all can kind of collectively understand. And we might dig a little deeper into those things, but it's okay that, that, that there are certain things that we just, that are, that we kind of established as a sort of habit and we don't necessarily need to like pick at. I guess this is what my answer led to the postmodern question, which was just like, maybe it's okay when, when we use that term that we're referring to a style on a review. And, and yes, it's, there are times to be critical of it, but there's also times when it's, when it's nice to have a kind of shared, if somewhat superficial understanding of some of these terms so that we can actually have a conversation about the things that are, like, it doesn't have to, we don't have to return to the kind of big terms constantly, right? That we can have a, a more general. So this is why, like for me, especially the word postmodern, the way I think it's been used sort of collectively, at least yeah, in the schools, it's a it's a term I think that we're at least as a as a group of designers quite comfortable. We understand what people are what they mean when they say it, right? And they it's interchangeable with the term pomo, and that's kind of okay. I absolutely detest the aesthetics of SketchUp. And that's very easy for me or mm -hmm. you, I think, too. And that's maybe it's very easy for us to agree. Yeah. And, you know, it's just terrible. But for me to spend time talking about SketchUp would highlight the role of SketchUp, SketchUp yeah. in my world. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and perhaps by digging enough in the trenches of crap, I would smell like crap after a while. Um, so, which is why I, I tend to avoid uh, what I detest. Back in Chicago, I, I met John McMurrow, and it, it was a true joy to. Um, Actually, no, I met John in Ohio. I met, I met John many, many years now. Uh, it was always a joy to sit on reviews with him because here's a guy who has uh, such, let's say, broad knowledge and let's say, huge uh, palette to, to see the qualities of things. I really enjoy watching him at work as a critic on, on a review. Uh, there's a guy who's never negative about anything. He, he's, even when the, he's meant to be negative or he's meaning to be negative, he works very hard to also describe the qualities of what he's seeing without jumping to the conclusion of saying this sucks or that that's terrible. Personally, as a critic, when I'm now on reviews, I, I think about John, you know, I, I want to maybe, the hard work is to maybe describe the qualities properly and, you know, describe the qualities accurately and eloquently. And so to, to me, the heavy lifting of criticism in, in that I think somehow also affected in the work that I do. Like I am highly critical of not just myself, but everything around me. But the sheen of positivity uh, or the sheen of uh, kind of insightful look, I think is necessary in, 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 the, in the work of design and how I critique the world. You've been listening to a conversation on critique.
Interviews were conducted by Joseph Bedford, Kurt Gambetta, Mark Achari, Joanna Grant, and Kevin Pazik between 2014 and 2015. Produced for the third issue of Attention, the audio journal for architecture, in 2016 by Griffin Ofish.